Blog Talk Radio. Somewhere in the valley, and while I'm eating a scone, it's left at the valley with Kevin and Karen. Hi, Karen. Hello, Kevin. And uh, how was your week? Uh, it was just fine. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> it was great. We got a great show going on here for you guys today. We actually have Peter Bogosian will be coming in. Uh, we have interviewed him. We'll be playing the clip. So uh, let's give Peter an applause. Oh, We met we met Peter uh, a little while back there. Well, um, uh, the Fraser Valley Atheist Skeptics and Humanists uh, brought him to town, and uh, he was very gracious the whole time, and he was uh, great to uh, very nice of him to give us an interview, and we'll be playing that very soon. But in the meantime, uh, there's a few things I wanted to touch base uh, with you, Karen. I just want to toss a few thoughts there before we go into our usual segments. Um, elections are coming up. Yes, municipal are. elections are coming up. And everyone should go and vote. Everyone go vote because municipal elections affect your daily life um, much more than other elections do, actually. They affect your school taxes, where your crosswalks are. They they affect your property taxes, hospitals, uh, all those things that, you know, bridges, highway overpasses, everything that deals with your daily life. And it's a shame to see that, uh, you know, when it comes to municipal elections, that's the one where people are least interested in participating. Yet it has the biggest effect on your direct, directly on you. Yeah, but a third of people vote, so that's two thirds of the population that does not vote. So um, I guess the, the message, since much of our audience are atheists, I guess, um, I guess the, the message is especially pertinent for you guys out there uh, listening to us. Uh, this is very important that you guys go out there and vote uh, because uh, there's a lot of um, prospective politicians out there that have this agenda of pushing religion into politics again. Uh, even here in the uh, Abbotsford Mission region and the Chilliwack and Langley and Maple Ridge, they do have this it's, goal in mind. It makes an impact. It makes a huge impact. They're not going to name any names, but it was written in the newspaper. It's easy for anyone to find out that there is a, someone running for council in Abbotsford who said the best day of her life is the day she accepted Jesus as her Savior. But my question to her is how is she going to represent the rather substantial population of Sikhs in Abbotsford or the Muslims in Abbotsford or the Nons in Abbotsford. How is she going to possibly represent those people when she is so firmly entrenched in her own religion? And this is the reason why uh, uh, politics and religion should be kept separate. Uh, So now the worst thing you can do, in my view, uh, as an atheist out there, if you're an atheist or you're an agnostic, something like that, is to not do anything. That is the worst thing you can do. Now I'm not saying go out there and be like, super participating in everything. But get informed about who these people are. Meet them. You know, uh, ex- expose your, your views, you know, as how you think that, you know, getting shouldn't be able to bring Bibles into schools. Or if they are, then every other religion should too. Um, you know, these politicians need to hear from the atheists, and the, the atheists need to stop being so shy about these things. 
I would actually even disagree with you. I don't think it's just the atheist. I think if you are not a Christian, if you have some other belief system, you should be equally concerned because anyone who is representing only the Protestant, you know, they're not going to represent you. And and it's, it's religious equality means equality. It doesn't mean that one religion gets preference. So, um, you know, if you if you I don't know anyone who who yeah. <laughs> anyone who's concerned about equality, actually, regardless of their religious affiliation, should be concerned about this thing because it does affect the equality of our school systems, of our municipal. And you know what? You you get to go vote for municipal politics. Uh, it takes you ten minutes every three years. So don't tell me you're too busy and you can't do it. I just don't buy that. Um, I would uh, encourage you guys go see the candidates' debates. And ask them the questions. Ask them questions that are not just pertinent to politics, but also pertinent to their belief system, because that's what they use to make their decision. Uh, you know, you might not be as bold as saying, you know, do you really believe that there was a burning bush and all that? You might not want to be that bold, but you you do want to ask them how they how they feel. You know, if they're if they're very Christians about the homeless situations, how come they you know they haven't acted on this? You know, how do they, how do they uh, if they're very Christian, for example, I'm using Christian here. Uh, if they're very Christian, how do they feel about representing atheists? Uh, you know, can they represent atheists? How do they feel about them? You know, get to know them, uh, not just for your own sake, but also to put the bug in their mind that we are no longer a very silent uh, minority. We are actually more, way more numerous than it seems. And we need to come out of the closet and make these people know that we're here and we're not going anywhere. I agree, 100%. Okay, well, now that we've done that, we'll move on to our next thing. We shall be this day in history. Okay, this day in history. Bit of a mixed bag, this day in history. It's starting in Upper Canada in 1793, the Assembly of Upper Canada passes a decree against slavery. All slave children born in Upper Canada after 1793 uh, will become free at the age of 25. Now, I'm not quite sure why they had to wait till age of 25, and uh, honestly, I did not know that there was slavery in Upper Canada before then. But 1793, um, a, a decree against slavery. Which year was that? 1793. 1793, oh, thank God. I thought I was in trouble there. No, I'm not that old. <laughs> then uh, we jump right along to uh, 1885. And this is the the item that I'm going to spend a bit more time on this week. 1885, riots break out in Montreal against compulsory smallpox vaccination. Now, a uh, train conductor arrived in Montreal um, with smallpox. He'd gotten it all while he was traveling on the train. He was taken to the hospital, but he wasn't properly quarantined. People there were exposed. The conductor eventually was sent home for his family to look after him. There was a guard posted at his house, but his family members left regardless. Spread the the smallpox all over the city. So, as a 10-day incubation period, people didn't necessarily know they were infected. And they were going about their daily business. Also in Montreal, there's an English elite. There's French working classes. They're extremely religious. They're often illiterate. And um, they were being told that there should be a vac- that they should be vaccinated. Their church told them otherwise, and they obviously had a, a distrust of the city officials who did not speak their language or share their culture. So they refused, in most cases, to get vaccinated. And uh, and then they tried to, a city officials tried to have a compulsory vaccination. Well, that also didn't go very well, especially since there were two prominent English doctors who spoke out against vaccinations and said that they actually cause you to become sick as opposed to protecting you from the illness. 
And then there was a, a vaccination happened in an orphanage, but it was poorly conducted. The tools were dirty, and all the kids got sick. Actually, not with smallpox, but they all got sick anyway. Mm. So it ended up in a in a riot against this smallpox vaccine, and, uh, and religion and um, lack of knowledge were largely due to that. So I didn't know about that. I thought it was a very interesting incident. Well, it's it's actually becoming back. It's kind of coming back. Mm. Uh, there was a couple of incidents right here in Chilliwack. Uh, where uh, religious uh, freedoms were kind of called into questions because of that. <clears throat> and it's also a big issue in the, the southern United States, I believe Texas. But it's always Texas. There, I'd just like to note that the co- vaccines aren't compulsory. You can send your child to school if they haven't been vaccinated. But uh, yeah, I think the idea is that most people in this day and age would, would have that knowledge and would just do it anyway. But uh, at this time, with the lack of communication, lack of trust, and a huge amount of religion, it was a big issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving on from that, uh, 1890, Wilford, Wilford Woodruff, president of the Mormon Church, renounces the practice of polygamy. In 1890, this allowed Utah to be accepted as a state in 1896. I'd like to point out, and then Bountiful, B.C., they do still practice polygamy, and they trade children across borders illegally. Mm. Um, and then we go to... Let's see, 1957, nine black teenagers attended the all-white Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. That's they, cool. they were uh, under armed guard, the um, federally, federal, uh, whatever, yeah, the government. federal government. There's a word for that. But anyway, they were, federal agents protected them, um, and they went to school, and most of the white kids refused to attend the class. But that was the first non-segregated uh, what year was that again? 1957. <laughs> Mind-boggling. Yeah, it's been more than 50 years ago. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. <clears throat> and the last thing that I... Oh, no. No, no. sorry, I missed one. 1917, Ethel McLaughlin of Regina, Saskatchewan, becomes the first woman to serve as a juvenile court judge and justice of the peace in Canada in 1917. A lot of women in other provinces hadn't even got the vote at that point. Mm. Ethel McLaughlin. And then we move to 1981, Sandra Day O'Connor, sworn in as the first female justice on the Supreme Court in the United States. So uh, 1917 to 1981, we've had quite a few setbacks in equality. Since then, 1957, first time there was non-segregated schools, it's been a bumpy ride. But we're getting there slowly. Yeah, 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 we are. And, you know, it kind of makes me laugh because, um, you know, there's a lot of religious folks out there that are against uh, gay rights and uh, you know, the LGBT community and all that. And I kind of want to tell these people, you know, when we look today at 57 years ago, when these people were refusing to go to school with black kids, it's ridiculous. You know, if these people are still alive today, they're probably embarrassed. Well, if they're not, they should be. (laughs) They should be. They should be, yeah, if they're not. They they really should be. I don't care how old school you are. I mean, this is just unacceptable. So when when you're not for gay rights today, you're not for equality for these people, think of 57 57 years down the road, how stupid will you look to? You'll look just like these people that we look upon today that were racist. So anyway, so we got this great story I want to bring you on. So let's talk about that right away. Actually, I'm going to pass that on to Karen because she reads way better than me. All right. This is, I'm, I'm actually uh, reading this directly off Alternet. It's an article by Amanda Marcotte. Marcotte? I'm not sure. Anyway, Alternet. 
And it's called How the Christian Right is Getting Beat at Its Own Game by Satanists of All People. Ooh, that's probably good. September 24th, 2014. One of the favorite myths that Christian conservatives like to tell about themselves is that they are champions protecting religious freedom, in quotation marks, from the supposed oppressions. Whoa. Yeah, what was that buzzing to? Uh, from the supposed oppressions of a secular humanist society. But that argument is increasingly being, being tested by, of all people, Satanists. Yes, people who claim to worship the demon that Christians believe runs hell are quickly learning how easy it is to show that the Christian right never had any intention of protecting religious freedom. Instead, Ooh, that's harsh. <laughs> time and time again, Satanists are showing that the conservative Christian definition of religious freedom doesn't apply at all to faiths like Satanism that offend them. Faced with the demands of Satanists, the supposed religious freedom crusaders of the religious right turn back into the theocrats they always were interested only in having government endorsement of their religion and often eager to demand that the government stomp out religious practices that offend them. So, uh, it it has all this, it says, oh yeah, and it has the side effect of exposing the Christian right as a humorless movement that struggles to tell the difference between reality and satire. But that's just a bonus for observers. Yes, indeed. <laughs> The latest dust-up involves the satanic Black Mass conducted in a civic center in Oklahoma City. Black Mask or Black Mass? Mass. Okay, Black well, Mass. Called Black Mass. Well, it's a bit early for Halloween, I guess. <laughs> the Dakma of Angra Mayu Syndicate held a two- to three-hour ceremony. Say that last five times. Nope. <laughs> that mocked the Catholic Mass by stomping on bread and sexualizing the grape juice in lieu of wine, praying to various demons. This is where it goes a bit wrong. Sadly, the whole thing held by a convicted sex offender, Adam Daniels, was basically a failure at satirical performance art, as the group conducting it seems to take themselves way, way too seriously. Because of this, other Satanist groups with better senses of humor have distanced themselves from this group. But despite being an utter failure on that front, it still managed to demonstrate the screaming hypocrisy of Christian conservatives who claim to stand for religious freedom. Yeah, satire is a very powerful weapon, but you got to be able to use it properly. Yes. You know, it seems this group is kind of failing to do that. Father Jonathan Morris went on Fox News Sunday to demand that Oklahoma City officials shut down the Black Mass. After paying lip service to the idea that Satanists have a political right to worship, the fact that some people in the community oppose it should be considered reason enough to shut it down. When you have a group that does this, not just because they want to do their own little worship, but they are provoking anger and hatred among the community, the city can step in and say, that's not worship, that's not free speech, that's mockery, and you're inciting violence. He added, as if it's the fault of Satanists if people assault them and not the fault of the people doing the assaulting. So this, this is what this uh, Father Jonathan Morris is saying. Yeah, yeah. He's and very then, good at crying for his religion, but when it comes to saving another religion, he's not going to step up. Yeah, so... And then Morris goes on, but what if I wanted to go and desecrate a Koran out in front of my church, complained Morris. What if I want to speak pro-Nazi stuff right in front of my church and get people all fired up on a public sidewalk? End quote. In fact, both of those would actually be completely allowed under the First Amendment. It's true. Yeah, freedom it is. Of yeah, it's freedom of speech. Christian conservatives are constantly floating the fear that Christian pastors will be thrown in jail for preaching hate against gay people. But in fact, this doesn't happen precisely because of the same freedoms that allow a bunch of Satanists to stomp on some bread and say they're against Jesus. By flailing around like this, Father Jonathan Morris showed how much the Christian white right wants to have it both ways, demand broad religious rights for themselves while demanding state oppression when others want the exact same rights. Yeah. 
they, these people don't seem to realize that if you start doing this preferential treatment, you know, you, you, if you, you're going to have a conversation with somebody like that, you just tell them, what if it was a, go- a Muslim government? And their, 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 their tune changes right away. You know, say, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't, you can't have the government favor just the Muslims. Mm-hmm. Then why do we have a government favoring just the Christians? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oklahoma is the home of another son by a much funnier statement who have figured out how to expose this particular Christian right hypocrisy. Christians put a monument to the Ten Commandments up at the Oklahoma State House, declaring their right to do so as one of religious freedom. The Satanic Temple, run out of New York City, responded by demanding the same religious freedom to put up a monument of the demon Baphomet. Is that what you it? Uh, I think it's called Baphomet. Baphomet. The proposed monument is a hoot. Baphomet is sitting on a throne while two children gaze adoringly at his goatly visage. <laughs> I saw the image of that. It's actually well done. The point of the ascent, however, is quite serious, to expose the Hepshin conservatives who want to justify government endorsement of religion under the guise of religious freedom. Lucian Greaves of the Temple told Vice uh, newspaper or magazine, Constitutional law is quite clear on this issue. The state can't discriminate, discriminate against viewpoints. If they've opened the door for one, they've opened it for all. To turn down the Satanists is to admit that the Christian right doesn't care for religious freedom at all, but simply wants government to push their religion while suppressing others who disagree. The Satanic Temple is pulling a similar stunt in Florida to protest the Orange County Public Schools, which allowed the world changers of Florida to pass out Bibles and religious pamphlets on campus. Campus, sorry. Campus? Campus. (laughs) An atheist group already managed to get its protest in by getting similar permission to pass out atheist materials, putting the district in a situation where they either had to let them do it or risk a lawsuit. But the Satanist groups are making the situation hilariously surreal by asking to distribute the Satanic Children's Big Book of Activities. (laughs) That sounds great. A coloring book with games that explain the ins and outs of Satanic rituals, as well as showing kids how to draw a pentagram. Yay! (laughs) Five steps for drawing a pentagram. As with the Oklahoma case, Greaves explains that it's a matter of simple fairness, because if a public school board is going to allow religious pamphlets and full Bibles to be distributed to students, as is the case in Orange County, Florida, we think the responsible thing to do is to ensure that these students are giving, given access to a variety of differing religious opinions. Neil Heiser at Think Progress concurs, pointing that in Lamb Chapel versus Center Maurice Union Free School District, uh, so this is a case against Lamb's Chapel and School District. The Supreme Court decided that churches could show religious films on school property so long as they didn't turn around and discriminate against other religions who wanted the same rights. Under the Constitution, what's good for an evangelical church is also good for the Satanic Temple. Neuheiser concludes. For years now, the Christian right has been able to push government endorsement of religion by claiming that they aren't asking for special rights to use school grounds state house lawns and civic centers for their religious agenda. The only way to know for sure is to put them in a situation where they extend the same privileges they want for themselves to people who they not only hate, but fear, Satanists. So far, they're feeling the test. Hmm. That's a great article. Yes, indeed, it is. <laughs> and uh, thank you for reading it. Uh, I think it speaks volumes as to, oh, thank you, speaks volumes as to, you know, People are the the they all play victim in this game, but if they really were following the teachings of their religion, uh, it would be you know they would try to be equal and fair. But yeah, in, in a way, yeah, in a way. But you know, I'm going to correct myself here. Um, 
in a way, the religion doesn't play fair. It's uh, it's 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 designed to eradicate other uh, competition, right? Which, by the way, Dr. Del Rey explained to us, which we'll be playing that clip, not today, but in another episode. We just interviewed Dr. Del Rey. Fantastic guy. Yes, he's awesome. But anyway, today our feature uh, presentation, I guess, is uh, with Peter Bogosian. Um, Dr. Peter Bogosian? Yes. Philosophy uh, a professor out of uh, the University of Portland. And he created a book uh, called The Manual for Creating Atheists. If you have not read that book, I highly, highly recommend it. I read it about two or three times myself because I'm slow like that. <laughs> so anyway, here's a clip with uh, Peter Bogosian. Enjoy. Okay, so, you know, I'd like to read a little passage from this wonderful little book I have here. Uh, this is a conversation between a teacher and uh, somebody who doesn't want his son uh, to talk about his religion. So this person comes up and says, um, it's a conversation, obviously. I told you on the phone you've crossed the line by asking questions about my son's faith. So he replied, okay, wait, please, first, what class is your son taking? Critical thinking. Okay, thanks. And why do you think uh, faith should be off the table? Because it's an abuse of your authority. You have no right to ask students. They're young. They'll believe what you tell them. He went on for a few minutes, basically repeating himself, and I listened. Okay, so what should I talk about in a critical thinking class? Anything except that. Algebra? That's ridiculous. You know yourself you shouldn't talk about algebra. True, but I'm trying to establish a baseline. Things I should and shouldn't talk about, right? So I shouldn't talk about algebra. But what other faith? What about Islam? Should I talk about Islam? No, there's there may be Islamic in the new class. No, definitely not. Should I talk about how people come to knowledge? Yes, yes, as long as you don't talk about faith. So just to be clear, I should talk about how people come to knowledge as long as it doesn't re relate to faith. Is that your view? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, that's correct. And what about Noah's Ark? Can I talk about that? What? What about it? Am I allowed to talk about how people know about the big boat and all the species and such? No, no, no. What about the koala bears? What about the koala bears? Can I talk about how the koala bear went from the Ark to Australia? What are you talking about? What koala bear? You know, those cute, fuzzy little bears. They're called koala bears. They live in Australia. Have you ever been to the zoo? I know what a koala bear is, but why are we talking about koala bears? Because I want to know how the koala bear got to Australia. And I want to know if you think I can talk about this. But what does the koala bear have to do with anything? Well, once the koala bear got off the ark, how did it go to Australia? It migrated. Migrated, you know. But if it only eats eucalyptus eucalyptus leaves and there's no eucalyptus tree where the ark allegedly landed so how did the koala bear get to Australia? It used to eat other things. So it evolved? Pause. Long pause. And this is just an extract of a book that's called A Manual for Creating Atheists and we're lucky enough to have the author with us here today. One. Hello Peter, how you doing? I am doing fantastic. Hey, Kevin. Peter Bogosian, ladies and gentlemen. We have him with us. See that, Peter? They love you. They love you. <laughs> i got to walk around with someone doing that behind me. That would be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Peter, for uh, those, of you, uh, those of our listeners that don't know you, shame on their house for, for not knowing you, uh, can you give us like a, a quick brief, uh, who is Peter Bogosian and where are you going with all this stuff? Who is Peter Bogosian in terms of professional context? I wrote a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists. 
I speak about faith and reason and evidence and the role of evidence and belief formation around the country uh, and Canada. I'm going to INR5 next year. Nice. In I think it's in Vancouver. It is. Mm-hmm. I teach philosophy, critical thinking, atheism, etc., ethics at Portland State University. And that's about it. That's that's kind of a brief overview. Okay. So so you, uh, the book there, um, a manual for creating atheists. Now you got to admit, and uh, a lot of people will find this a, a provocative title. Was there trouble from the public because of the title of your book? Which is a fantastic well, I, book, by the way. I read it like three times already. Oh well, thanks. I I appreciate that. I really do. Uh, well, uh, that wasn't my initial. I wasn't going to name it that initially, but my editor and my publisher told me that. Um, I was going to put the word epistemology in it, but they said no one in their right mind would buy a, word, a book with the word epistemology. Uh, I like the title. Uh, Dennett likes the title, too. He told me. I like the title. It's. Um, I think it is what it is. I think it says exactly what it's going to do, even though you know many people say, oh, a manual. I don't want to read a manual. Uh, it doesn't really capture the essence of what the book is, in a sense. But yeah, there was there was a lot of blowback from it for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, was was your book written in a, uh, as a, a bit of a countermeasure uh, to religion infiltrating U.S. politics, especially? Yes, uh, it was written. Definitely, that was a, a part of it. And I hear things are not as bad, but somewhat similar in Canada. Is that correct, by the way? Um, it's, That's it's not, Yeah, it's not as bad, but it's it's starting to. I, I, this I, current I, government is doing their best to yeah, uh, to make it that way. It's starting to infiltrate across the border. You're and that's Karen, it. right? Yes. We haven't introduced Karen yet. Oh, Karen's always with me, of course. She's always doing the podcast. <laughs> She's an integral part. She's the one that keeps me at bay from doing stupid things. Oh, only sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> the way she can, anyway. Uh, no, this this government does yeah. sneaks a lot of things in uh, under without any consultation under the radar, and they've done quite a lot to make it a much more religious government, the federal government, that is. Mm-hmm. They even try, tried starting saying now, uh, like they say in the U.S. so many times, you know, God bless Canada. You know, they're even trying that now. So, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, indeed. Um, I love the way the book was written, okay? Um, like It's like a little notebook, you know, for, from school, actually, with detailed notes. Uh, and was it was it done in that way to get the uh, prospective student, if I can say that, to want to do his or her own research? Well, it was done. So what I did was, <coughs> excuse me, the the bulk of the book except the footnotes were written at uh, junior level in college, and then the footnotes were written at a master's or a PhD level. So people could take it to any level they wanted to take it. And then I have the dig deeper section, so in case anybody wants to, and I have that, I'm copying that same format for my app. Uh, they have a dig deeper section in case anybody wants more information or wants to go in more depth in the material. And so, the, you know, the, I had been thinking about those things for 25 years, and I taught similar things about how to talk people into reason in the prisons that I wrote, and I published about that. And prison inmates have a really rather different um, set of expectations and experiences. So I wrote it so that anybody could just begin using it to talk people out of faith and superstition. And there are some wonderful little videos of people. Anthony Monabusco has has a YouTube channel. You can post the link on it after this uh, podcast for your listeners, in which he does these five-minute interventions. And he he, um, again, without setting out too much of the book, the basic idea is nobody is just going to snap, uh, be talked out of their faith instantly. It's a slow process. Mm-hmm. And you, you, the, the idea is that you want to get them to question basic assumptions and to, to um, help them to doubt 
the beliefs that they hold or become less certain and less dogmatic about those and then decrease their confidence value that they hold in beliefs. So he'll say, he'll start the intervention by saying, okay, you know, how confident are you in this, in the belief in God? And people will say, a lot of say 170, the guy today I said I watched, um, when I watched the video, he said uh, 70. And so he tries to bring them down on this thing. It's like a, it's called the trans-theoretical model without being overly complicated. Mm-hmm. But it's basically helping people decrease the confidence value they hold in their beliefs. And you can do this for anything. I mean, it doesn't have to be faith-based beliefs, but it's just it, the, the problem of faith is a particularly egregious problem that needs to be uh, addressed. So they're fun little five-minute videos. Yeah, well, you you just said it yourself there, and it's one of the things I really appreciate about your, your book. It's not just for atheists. It's almost like a a great sales book in a way. It's a book that you, they'll help you just about debate anything, whether it's politics or or anything in life. You know, you can, you can almost call it a manual for life. Yeah, I I would definitely not use the word debate though. I'd use the word um, can can help you talk to people about things and mm-hmm. can, can help you engage ideas. Uh, I, I don't view these engagements as debates. I think debates are actually counterproductive. I think what is productive is having a more sincere and honest conversation with someone where you try to really figure out how somebody knows what they know. And if somebody knows something that you don't know, that is, if the process they use to know something can be relied upon to lead one to the truth, then you should use that process yourself. So um, it really is a way that that everybody can... Um, become less dogmatic and more open to ideas. Mm-hmm. Now you, sorry, go ahead. You mentioned an app. Yes, I was about to say that. You mentioned an app. I, I even hear there's a game coming up. Yeah, I have a game that just got kickstarted. Uh, the game doesn't have anything to do with faith or, or religion, but it does have to do with. So, interesting. So, I've been thinking a lot lately about. I think, I think targeting. You know, a, a very good friend of mine said, you need to rethink from scratch everything you're doing. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you need to take a step back from it because I don't think, well, while I think you're achieving what you need to be achieving, I don't know that you've laid the groundwork. And I really thought about that for a long time. And the groundwork is basically helping to nurture dispositions in people so that they value those things that are necessary for critical rationality. So I worked with a, that's quite a sentence right there, but I worked with a, uh, a game <laughs> company and I came up with this idea that, so in certain things in academic context, outside of academia in a certain sense, it's really hard to help people have, to, to develop certain attitudes that predispose them to being rational and changing their beliefs. It's called belief revision and being trustful of reason. And so we came up with a, a way to do that in the format of a game. So it's basically a storytelling game that fosters these dispositions necessary for critical reasoning. So you, you construct stories, and we have a local artist. Everything is local here in Portland, Oregon, the, the Northwest. Nice. Um, we have a local artist who, who did the cards, Noah Patrick Farr. He's an excellent artist. We have a local company, Elbowfish, we work with, and we're going to work with local producers too. So I'm pretty excited about it. It's a really cool game. Every time we've play tested it, people seem to love it. Um, and you know, then we ask them about it afterwards. We do follow-up questions about sp- specific uh, 
critical thinking skill sets, and they all seem to be more receptive to it. So basically, that's the bottom. That's the nutshell of the game, and it's the uh, URL is just elbowfish.com. Elbowfish.com, and that's out soon, or is it out already? Uh, that is well, we just got a Kickstarter, and I have a meeting with them. I think Monday about when it's when it's going to come out. We're gonna, it's in production now, I think. Oh, nice. Right, it will be within the next couple of days. Any of your students looked at that? Have your students tested it? Uh, no, my students didn't didn't test it. Although we did open gaming tests, o- open uh, open game, open night game, open game, open game night, and some of my <laughs> I put it on the board, and some of my students went to it, but uh, not as part of a class. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd like yeah. to see if I could. I've been thinking about integrating that in my class. Um, okay. So, so well, what about the app then? Wait, so that's the game, but the app is a totally separate uh, item. Yeah. So the app is, so many people have said, well, you know, I really want to try this, but I'm shy. Or I really want to try this, but I'm afraid someone's going to say something and I don't really know what to respond and I don't know. You mean the epistemology. They wanted to try the epistemology, but they didn't know how to start it. Is that what you mean? Yeah, they they wanted to try a conversation where they help people share their religious delusion. You know, uh, Garden of Eden is in Jackson County, Missouri. (laughs) Jesus Christ rose from the tomb. Yeah. Something of that nature. The the app is helping them um, like start that without having to have the book in hand or the app. So people would say, well, you know, I want to start talking people out of faith, but I'm afraid they'll say something that I don't understand, or I'm afraid that they'll. And so, no matter how many times that I, um, I you know, like I thought about this for a long time, and then I thought, well, why not make why not make an app? So we, we I have a team of about twenty people. Now we just added a couple more team members. Um, we have a content side and then an application side. And I'm working with a, a friend of mine, Brian Walsh, on the application side. So myself and my team, we do all of the content. And basically, there are, are it's kind of like a dungeon crawl. This is the idea. And you, it's gonna, the name is going to be something like Escaping the Cave or something like that. <laughs> and so you help people. Um, as you start in the cave, Plato's cave, you're going to help people escape the cave. That's also why it's not a debate. You're not debating anybody. You know, the, the people you help, you rescue from delusion, then go behind you as you um, as you traverse the cave and enter the light. So it's basically it's it's an absolutely massive project. I can't even possibly tell you how many hours I put onto into this and how many. It's certainly the largest project I've ever attempted. Wow! Um, I'm looking forward to have, seeing that come out mm-hmm. uh, in December. Well, in wow. in December we're going to start beta testing it. The content is about ninety percent finished now. I mean, one of the the documents is called the data dump. It's five hundred of any conceivable thing anybody could say to you about faith or God. Wow. Five hundred statements that people can make. Wow! Goodness gracious! That's huge right there. Well, you heard. Yeah, and then we have a curveball section of things that nobody, you know, once in a, in a blue moon people would say to you. And so basically it gives you a correct answer, or an ideal response, two ideal responses, and three uh, incorrect responses. So here's, check this out. This is one of the things that's super cool about this. So you're going through this dialogue, like one, the one I'm looking at right now, I just popped it up, is Pascal's wager. Mm-hmm. It's, and then the line is, it's, it's safer to believe than not to believe. It's safer to believe than not to believe. So on the screen, users will see ideal response. They'll just see three um, answers, like A, B, C. 
But what there really are, there really are two ideal responses and um, three responses that are not ideal. So if they fail the quiz and they get bumped out again, it'll go to another ideal response and to another. Um, um, so any, every time they take the quiz, it's a little bit different. Interesting. That choose your own adventure story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah, and so we have we also have dialogue trees, and we have a lot of people who have um, kind of we call them notables, notable atheists who have contributed to this. We also I also solicited about thirty five essays from leading atheists in the world, about just four hundred word essays, very brief essays that can fit on a screen. What are the best ways that you know to talk people out of faith and superstition and into reason? Mm-hmm. And they answer those, and it covers everything: cosmological arguments and uh, very thing. You know, um, um, Ryan Cragen submitted one. David Reese submitted one. Stephen Law is going to submit one. Um, um, Raphael uh, Latastor is going to has submitted three. Richard Carrier submitted one, and you have Richard coming up there next week. So um, J.D. Brooker submitted one. So anyway, we have we have a lot of people who have collaborated on this. It's a it's a really it's an absolutely massive project. Yeah, I, I can't help but remark on that, that that's probably one of the reasons that I think, uh, and you would probably agree with me, that atheists are winning because uh, we're not using their burning bush to communicate stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I think, A little bit more high tech. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of the ways we've traditionally communicated with theists, um, they haven't really served the interest of the theist. Forget our own advancing our own interests of having a more rational, more secular society, but they haven't really um, advanced the epistemic situation of the person with whom we're speaking. And so that's one of the things I tried to do in my book is to bring more civility to our discourse. You know, I just was thinking about this the other day, and I mentioned this. I was on Stephen Molyneux's podcast, a fellow Canadian, and we talked about the schism in the atheist movement and uh, feminism. And it's really interesting to me. I don't know how it is in Canada, but there's this thing in the United States where like, it's just so um, contentious and so fractious and every, you know, it's like, you can't really even have a conversation without someone without, you know, like, why didn't you win? Or why didn't you, you know, beat him? Or why didn't you say that? And I just think that those ways of interacting with people, they're just, they're just not productive at all. Mm-hmm. They just don't, they're mm-hmm. not in anybody's interest. It's mm-hmm. a bit like short-term gain instead of long-term uh, planning. I don't even know what you'd gain short term. I mean, I, maybe you'd gain the feeling of, I don't know, having beaten someone or something. But I don't know what why that would be advantageous. Yeah, yeah you're right. I agree with you that uh, I, I'm not sure that's always, well, I don't know how it is in the States. But in Canada, I wouldn't say it's even necessarily intentional. It's just that in some cases, the positions are so far apart that they don't even know where to meet in the middle. That it's hard to get a dialogue going just because people have such completely opposite uh, theories or viewpoints on the world. I think I think you're right. Uh, th- that's why there's a philosopher, Jurgen Habermas, who says that when when you communicate with people, let's just try to understand what they're saying first. You know, mm-hmm. Tr- try to really figure out why does some somebody believe this. So so the key there isn't what they believe. That's obvious. It's obvious to me why you know it's the conclusions that people come to are pretty obvious to me. Whether it's about gun control or talk to Jeff about that in Canada, I mean, it's not about what conclusions people have. It's about how they know what they know. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest that the first step in any conversation would be to just really sincerely try to figure out how it is that somebody came to this conclusion. And yeah. that's the thing I think we're lacking in our discourse. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because uh, uh, you're right. There's too much of a confrontational model is there. I mean, uh, religious people have the best of intentions anyway, right? They're not they're not evil people. They're just misguided, I guess. You know, you have to. Yeah, and them. and and um, some some of them have misconstrued reality. Others are delusional. But there's always a chance they're right, and we need to be open to that. But the way that we figure out if they're right or not, if they're correct, and we should subscribe to those beliefs is to figure out how they know what they know. It's not to look at their conclusions. It's not to say, Jesus Christ rose from a tomb. Well, how, you know, the question is, well, how do you know that? How, how, what, what is your evidence for that? And that's what we need to be focusing on. And we, we just, we have not been focusing on that to, to the degree in which we should. And, and that's, I think, <laughs> I think that's part of the reason that the dialogue, these conversations devolve into heated arguments mm -hmm. and I, th I think it's because it's just people yelling conclusions at each other and it's not about it should never be about a conclusion it doesn't make a difference what the conclusion is well i think you would agree with me that uh probably the best feeling in the world is to be right to be correct and adversely the worst feeling in the world is to be wrong so i think people all try to be right no matter what the cost i i i couldn't possibly disagree more i, I think that the best oh. feeling that i've had is when I had a belief that's true, like when I when I cast off a belief that was false, and I now have one less false belief in my kind of my um my the suite of of beliefs that I have. And Socrates talks about that that it, that it's more important to be refuted than it is to refute. I mean, I understand that people get a feeling; it's kind of a sweet feeling to be right about something. They're teaching a science and pseudoscience class about 10 years ago or something. I don't even know how long ago at Portland State. And uh, we, we go through all these pseudoscientific claims. And one of the claims is, of course, Bigfoot. And <laughs> yeah. a guy in my class was telling me he believed in Bigfoot. And when I asked him why, he said he wanted bragging rights. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, because if there is a, a Bigfoot, then I want to I want to be like yeah I knew there was a Bigfoot I knew that first kind of like a like a, a pseudo scientific hipster I guess you know uh, <laughs> but but I but I think I mean that was just so interesting to me that it, you can't get bragging rights from being lucky mm -hmm. I mean could it be the case that the universe is so con constructed so that Muhammad really did receive revelations in the desert. Yeah, sure, it could be. I mean, sure, I, there's nothing, nothing in the the nature of reality that certainly prevents that. Some people would disagree with me, but I would I would hold that that that's the case, and that we need to be open to that being the possibility. But the real question is, how, how do you know that? And without adequate justification for how somebody knows something, then I'm simply not going to believe it. And they shouldn't believe it either. And that's the va that gets back to the conversation about the game, about jucks, is that's the value we need to help people hold. It's more important – look, the value of belief revision is more important than any other value you hold. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So, um, Fantastic. I love that line. The, your book, um, has it caused a lot of ripples in the religious world? I mean, was there any bite back? You know, like when Dawkins wrote his uh, God Delusion – some people wrote the Dawkins delusion. Was there any kind of uh, fight back from the religious uh, factions towards your, yeah, your book? Yeah, a few people wrote books about my books, and a few people wrote... Uh, uh, Not that we're going to plug them in, but... 
Yeah, no, a few, a few people wrote books, and, you know, like, of course, obviously, I got a lot of stuff on Facebook. Um, yeah, there was, there was, there was a, a bite back. Those things are trivial, though. The, the more concerning thing to me was what I see now is that people are, I get, um, people will tell me, for example, your, uh, your book was read in my church, you know, or I went to church and, uh, uh, they said that the pastor or the minister or priest, what have you said, you know, if somebody says this to you, say this. And the, the interesting thing to me about that, that wasn't particularly interesting, but the, the theists now have, they're, they're not really using the word faith as much as they are trust or hope. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's the most disturbing consequence from my book to me. Yeah, so instead mm-hmm. of saying they, they have faith, they, they really mean they have hope. No, they mean they have faith, but they're playing a linguistic switcheroo, and, oh. and they're saying that they, have, they trust in the promises of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes, we, that, we've noticed that. That way they can avoid all of the pitfalls with the word faith, but it really is it's ultimately the same. Mm-hmm. But but it's more it's more it's more difficult. Those interventions are much more difficult when when uh, anyway. So I'm seeing I'm seeing a, I'm seeing a. Um, I don't mean to. I hope I don't mean to think that my work is overly grandiose or I have <laughs> caused some major sea change in the Christian world. I I don't certainly don't mean to imply that. But I I do see that there is a switch underway, and that switch is from using the word faith to using the word trust. And I write about that a little bit in my book. I just didn't re- realize how prevalent that would be. Mm, interesting. Can I ask a question that completely changes the subject here? Sure. Um, you, uh, I saw that you are going to be teaching a course in atheism at the university. You follow me on Twitter. Uh, well, it's on Facebook, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I'm curious about that. Are you? How are you teaching atheism? Are you... Uh, do you want me to uh, send you guys the syllabus after this, and you can post it for your for your uh, listeners? I would sure. love that. Yes, please. Let me uh, type that in the the comment line there. So I in the uh, let's see, send syllabus. I'll do it. So I don't forget. So uh, basically, it's um, a uh, so courses at Portland State are taught in ten week chunks. So they're not semesters; they're terms. And it's a very interesting mix of guest lecturers. Actually, we had a Christian guest lecturer, Phil Vischer, the guy who was responsible for Veggie Tales, is going to come. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So so uh, the class is – have you seen that movie? What's that movie that the Christians put out with Kevin Sorbo? Uh, that's uh, God's Not Dead. Yeah. yeah ooh, very good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it couldn't – I haven't seen it, but it couldn't possibly be fur- further from my conception of what that so if you want to figure out what the class is like, just reverse that whole movie, just like <laughs> flipping around one eighty. Um so yeah, so I'll send you the syllabus. You can see there every week there are questions, discussion questions that people can look at. We look at uh, I have another guest lecturer, Stephen Brutus, who just wrote a book, Religion, Culture and History is on Amazon. Mm-hmm. He's gonna come in and do an hour or two hour lecture on the history of atheism. So it's a a lot of lectures. Children, I mean, students are responsible, and they can take their children if they want to, to go to. And I think it's actually important for a lot of Portland State University students tend to be older. That's why I'm, I mentioned that. I think it's important for kids to see many religious services, so they realize that. Um, you know, Dennett talks about this as well. Um, but they, they, uh, one of the assignments is they have to go to three 
services that are different from their own. So if they're raised Baptist, then they have to go to you know um, a mosque or a temple or a Je- Jehovah's Witness or what have you. Oh, cool. And then um, so that's assignment. And then then it's really interesting, you know. It's just a really interesting exploration of ideas. Yeah, broadening the horizon. Hmm, that's really Say that cool. again? Broadening the the horizon of uh, what, what you know, I guess. Yeah, that's right. That's the idea. And we take a look at um, Christian theologians. We take a look at William Lane Craig and um, Plantinga and um, Swinburne and uh, Lennox. And, and then we take a look at uh, atheist thinkers. And, you know, uh, I did... When I did this class before, it's pretty cool. So I can Skype in. So all these guys uh, are kind of become close friends of mine. So I can Skype them in, and I have a little Skype session, and we get to hear from people like Russell Blackford from Australia. Mm-hmm. We get to hear from people like uh, John W. Loftus. I have a chapter coming out in his new book now. So it's pretty cool. So we can ask people a wide range of questions about – their book. Guy P. Harrison has come in to speak to the class, come in, quote unquote, via Skype. So it's pretty cool. And, you know, it's, it's, I really enjoy it. It's good. It's a big class, though, but it's good. We only have a few slots left. So I, I'm hoping that the people who want to take it get to take it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. So what's next for Peter Bergosian, aside the, the class there? The class and the app and the and game. Yeah, and the game and the I know. <laughs> so I think, so I'm going to, uh, I think December 31st, I'm going to transition beyond atheism. I'm not going to do that that much atheist stuff anymore. And the reason for that is because I want to go back to the root of critical thinking. And I want to – I mentioned this a little bit before. I want to, I want to go back to talking about what I think the conversation should be about. I think we need to have a conversation about having conversations, about how to have conversations. But even more important than that, I think it's – Every time somebody and there's a good video I can I'll actually put the link on this. Um, I did a I did a video a talk at Intel about critical thinking. It's a 20 minute crash course. I think what's important is how do we help people value those things which will make them more rational, more reasonable, and more civil toward each other. Because clearly that's not happening now. It's not happening. It's not even happening within the atheist movement. And so how can we expect theists, for example, to to model the behavior that, that we would like them to model if we're not even modeling it ourselves? So I want to get back to writing about and thinking about how to promote certain values that lead people to become better critical thinkers. That's very different, by the way, than promoting a critical thinking skill set. It, to me, it's not about, oh, someone can make an inference or somebody can, can you know, pick a fallacy out. You, you can look, you can be able to, p- you can pick all the fallacies out that you want in the world. That doesn't mean you're a good, good critical thinker. I mean, you could be in a situation in life where you just don't have, you know what to do, but you don't have the attitude. Like you have the skill set, but you're just not predisposed to make certain decisions. And that, and, and people if people lack that mechanism, then there's no way that they can help themselves. They're, they kind of become epistemically trapped. They become trapped with their decisions because they can't think beyond them. And doing all this within a, a frame of civility is what you're trying to do at the same time. I think that's important. I think now mm-hmm. things are so fractious and so contentious and so bitter. In And you mentioned politics before. Not, not only in politics, it's almost like we... Um, 
it's really it's really sad. I was talking to my my dad and my mentor about this. P- people are so uncivil towards each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, think about this. So I had that. I, I mentioned Phil Fisher. I had a conversation with him in an hour for an hour online, and I God, I, I couldn't. I can't even possibly tell you how many people said things to me like, "Oh, you know, you should have. You know, why didn't you crush them? You should. We having a bad day." <laughs> No, I'm having a conversation with them. Why does everybody, why does everything have to be about like crushing somebody? And what I think was super valuable about that is because it modeled those behaviors of really, you know, two guys really listening to each other, what they had to say. And the consequence of that is we kind of became friends um, and he's coming out to speak to my class. And I think that's a good experience. Students, mm-hmm. Look, students need to be, they need to make up their own minds about things. I'm not some some bully i'm not some some dogmatist who wants them to hold certain but look if they decide that the universe is constructed in such a way that thor is up there with a hammer that's great you mean he's not i i want to know how they know that so then i can know it too but um but but i think that's really important that we become more civil and more rational in our discourse and none of us want this country to turn into iraq or syria Mm -hmm. well you know when you do have that uh that all laid out. Send us a copy so we can send it to Parliament, and we <laughs> might send a copy to Congress down in the states as well, uh, because they could certainly could need more civility and more listening to the I, other fraction. I think there. we all need that. That's actually a, a something that's that's close to my heart. So I'm really happy to hear that you're going to be doing that. Yes, I agree with you 100%. So I guess this is this is the time I say uh, the the book is a manual for creating atheists. Where can people find this book? It's on Amazon. I haven't even looked on, at Canada and Amazon. I don't know how long, but it's on Amazon. And uh, if you're in the, it's on Amazon in the UK and the US, Canada, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where you can go. Yeah, it's a fantastic little book. It's actually uh, very inexpensive. And actually, when you came up here, I think I bought like five copies and I distributed oh. them. So <laughs> thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah, that was. I had a great time up there. You guys are. It's like. Uh, it's like family, you know, when you go some places, there's just like a big family. Well, you're always welcome back, of course. Oh, and, thank you. How's Nancy doing? Oh, she's great. <laughs> just as full, of, full yeah. of energy as ever. We were we were having a, we were having a drink last night with uh, your friend Richard Carrier and Nancy and Jeff, and you know we were all enjoying that, and we were saying good things about you for sure. Oh, well, that's good. How is Richard? Uh, ball of energy, the the fellow. Ball of energy. <laughs> we'll be all well, interviewing him. He is a, he. That man can. That man is a very impressive drinker, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I made sure to give him a bottle of uh, uh, Canadian Crown Royal with maple flavor to it. So. <laughs> oh, that was very cool. That was very cool. Very, very cool. Um, and we will keep our eyes open for your game and your app. And uh, Absolutely. And best of luck to all that, uh, Peter. And before you go, I just want to ask one shameless plug. Would you be so kind in your wonderful voice, because I think you got a great voice, to say something like, Hey, I'm Peter Bogosian, and I took a left of the valley with Kevin and Karen. Sure. Awesome. Ready? Go for it. I'm Peter Bogosian, and I took a left at the valley with Kevin and Karen. Awesome. Thank you so much, Peter. <laughs> My that was pleasure. Peter Bogosian, people. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. And have a, have a great time, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon, sir. All right. Thanks, my friends. Okay, bye now. And that was it. That was Peter Bogosian, people. Oh. Sounds like you just gave him that applause already. But that's okay. He deserved it. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. Now, I I got to tell you, when Peter came here, um, 
I don't know if I told you the story, Karen. Let me turn your volume on here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, my man. You didn't know. <laughs> hey, I have the power. <laughs> uh, there was something very interesting. Uh, Peter was... Um, I like to tell this little story because it tells the difference between uh, what happens in Canada and what happens in the U.S. Um, and uh, Peter was uh, sitting at the back of the auditorium uh, against the wall in, in you know, the, uh, I guess, the top left corner. And, you know, I kind of went to him and said, hey, Peter, uh, you know, good luck out there in your speech. And, you know, he says, yeah, no, no problem. And uh, he saw people come in and then he moved completely to the front, front row last seat on the right and I went down there because uh, I was installing the equipment to try to record him um, which by the way didn't work <laughs> that's why we don't have that clip uh, and I, I, I asked him I said, uh, I said Peter uh, you okay and he said to me he looked at me he says Kevin says you know what he says whenever I do a speech in the States I always sit at the back of the room against my back against the wall and I said why I said you were doing that up there he says yeah and it's because I'm always concerned that somebody's going to hit me in the back of the head with a baseball bat or something like that. I said, well, that's that's atrocious. It says, it says, and I'm up here in Canada, and it is so relaxed and so open, I guess, that he was in the front row. He was not concerned about that at all. And he had a blast here in Canada, in Abbotsford, the buckle of the Bible Belt, the Canadian Bible Belt, of all places. And I think that speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, he was nothing but a gentleman and a scholar the whole time he was here, and uh, we will see him uh, for sure at uh, Imagine No Religion 5, which will be happening in uh, Vancouver, Richmond this year. So definitely you guys should attend. Uh, I believe it's going to be around the end of May, beginning of June. What about you, Karen? Will you be there? Of course I'll be there. You know what we should do? I think we should actually get in touch with, uh, I want to say Brian. I forget his name. Um, anyway, and we should actually, maybe not necessarily just do reporting. Maybe we should inquire about broadcasting live from Imaginal Religion. Cool. That'd be awesome. That would be awesome. So we'll take a look into that. So I guess that takes us to the end of our show. Um, we'll, uh, be uh, be on the lookout for the next couple of shows uh, that we have going on here. Like I said, we interviewed Dr. Daryl Ray. We'll be playing that for you guys fairly soon about his book, The God Virus. And um, what else are we talking about? Um, I know we with Dr. No. And uh, like I was saying earlier on, yeah. Yeah. go up there, uh, register the uh, Go talk to the candidate. Some people rush. Yeah. This is what you can't say. Yeah. 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 Yeah.